This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know after kind of a week off, sort of, we're a strange schedule the last couple of weeks, and of course the upcoming holidays, we may be on every other week for the next few weeks, as we slowly march towards our 100th episode, and I have a really exciting surprise planned for that episode. In any event, there are moments in life that you remember where you were, right, the Challenger explosion, the JFK assassination, for those a little bit older, 9-11 of course, on a really broad scale and one of those moments for many people of my era is where were you when the OJ verdict was announced I remember exactly where I was and in today's interview I will reference that but today we're talking to one of the central characters in the drama that surrounded that period in the mid and late 1990s and that is Kim Goldman for those who remember OJ Simpson was found civilly liable for the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson, his ex-wife, as well as Ron Goldman, a restaurant waiter who was, it seems, in the wrong place at the wrong time, returning a pair of glasses to Miss Brown Simpson and was murdered along with her. Of course, OJ famously was found not guilty by the criminal jury in what has been characterized by many as one of the great miscarriages of justice in recent memory. That trial was a popular culture sensation with all kinds of spoofs of Judge Lance Ito and references to the dream team, quote-unquote, of Johnny Cochran and company. Of course, the prosecution with Marsha Clark and Chris Darden. And again, those who were around at that time will remember it well. And yet one of the great tragedies of that entire episode was that it really became a circus and the cult of celebrity surrounding O.J. Simpson dominated the trial as well as the personalities that I just mentioned. And the victims' voices in many cases were drowned out, their memory forgotten. Ron Goldman especially became somewhat of a footnote or an afterthought in this otherwise mesmerizing celebrity trial of the century. Well, Kim Goldman, Ron's sister, his only biological sister, They grew up together in a very tight-knit family, together with just their father in the Chicago suburbs, eventually in California. She has spent her life dedicated to ensuring that his memory has not been forgotten. And not only that his memory has not been forgotten, but that his memory has spawned a tremendous amount of work on behalf of victims, victims' advocacy, working to make sure that victims around the country know what their rights are, or in some cases, lobbying for new rights to be enshrined so that victims could be protected around our country. There's still a lot that's broken about the criminal justice system, and certainly the reality of victims is a major part of that. Kim has been incredibly gracious in opening up to us, and of course, she also recently concluded an incredible 10-part podcast called Confronting O.J. Simpson, where she really ventures to reclaim that voice that was perhaps overwhelmed by the louder 
voices and the culture of celebrity at the time, but she has reclaimed that through her podcast and owned the narrative as it should have been all along. The original release date for this podcast comes squarely in the midst of the high holiday season, right before Rosh Hashanah, and I think this particular conversation includes some really meaningful food for thought about forgiveness, justice, and many other related themes that I would encourage all of our listeners to meditate on as you listen to Kim Goldman. A reminder again to subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, all different platforms. Please rate and review as well. Spread the word to friends and family, acquaintances far and wide so that we can continue to grow our community. Follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Facebook and Instagram. Jews You Should Know with a U on Twitter. And email us, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with the sister of Ron Goldman and longtime victims' rights advocate, Kimberly Goldman. We are here with Kim Goldman. And Kim is a an advocate for victims' rights and has a tremendous uh, history and life story. Of course, she's most well-known to maybe many of my listeners for her role tangentially in the O.J. Simpson, uh, Ron Goldman, and Nicole Brown Simpson story, which of course was a major, major flashpoint in modern American history. And we'll go through all of that. But first of all, how are you, Kim? I'm plugging along here in uh, Southern California. Um, just, you know, back to the grind of school and work and, and uh, happy to be on the phone with you. Wonderful. Now, for, for those uh, who want kind of like the inside scoop, so uh, Kim is actually dropping off her son to school somewhere on the West Coast, some uh, non-discreet location, and it's the middle of August, August 14th, and I'm, I was shocked to learn that they actually start school so early. I feel terribly for her son, but I guess good for all the parents out there who get an earlier uh, reprieve with their kids back to school. I don't know. It kind of it kind of came on fast. Um, we only had literally two months in summer, and half of it he spent in summer school. So <laughs> that's it. There, there you, you know, go. Well, that's all right. Grind. It's hard to believe. In, in two weeks, my kids will be doing the same. Uh, but in any event, Kim, tell us a little bit about where you're from, your background. Are you a West Coast girl? Mid, uh, you mentioned uh, you're not from there originally. I think so. Where um, where are you from, and what was your early upbringing? Um, I was born and raised in the suburbs of Chicago, um, and uh, with my dad. Chicago. Uh huh. Midwest girl. Um, So we were raised, uh, my brother and I, with my dad, um, just the three of us. And we moved to California in uh, 1987 when my dad married uh, his wife, and uh, my dad was tired of the winters, (laughs) so he uprooted us. And uh, transported us across the country. Um, so uh, I've been here ever since. I've moved around California a bit, um, but I'm back now in Southern California. Very cool. And now, when you were in the Midwest or in Chicagoland, were you like in the northern suburbs, Highland Park, Skokie, that area? You're familiar. Yeah, we're at Buffalo Grove. Buffalo um, Grove. Yeah, and my dad's uh, wife was from Northbrook. So, um, yeah, so I'm familiar with the whole Northwest area. Did you go to Buffalo Grove High School or Stevenson? Where did you go? 
you were great. We went, I went to Stevenson um, just for uh, part of my freshman year. That's when my dad moved us. Wow. Yeah, and my brother graduated from Stevenson High School. So that must have been a really tough transition to, in the middle, you know, for a young woman in, in just starting out high school to leave and all of her friends and go cross country. Um, but yeah, my dad didn't see it that way. <laughs> so, um, it, it, it was a little rough. Um, my dad also, um, like I said, got married um, and his wife had three young kids. And so the five of us kids all became a quick Brady Bunch family situation. So it was definitely hard. Um, my brother, like I said, was out of high school um, and the younger kids were, you know, too young. And I don't mean it negatively, but they were too young to have had all their established relationships and stuff. So um, I, I was a pretty bitter teen <laughs> for oh, a little that, bit. Goodness, that, that yeah. is a rough, that's a rough move for, for any, any young person, but certainly like right in the beginning of high school. Um, yeah. Did you acclimate pretty quickly to California? Or? Um, I don't think I've, completely acclimated now, um, to be honest with you. Um, you know, and I, again, I don't mean this negatively, but there's a different feeling, um, with the Midwest and East coast. Um, so I just, I miss a little bit of my Midwestern roots and I haven't necessarily replicated that here. Although where I live is, is very family oriented. Um, and it's very safe and a kid is happy, but I definitely miss, I miss my upbringing. Um, you know, I can't get ahead here financially. It's really rough. It's super expensive. Um, oh yes. But, but you know, not that, I mean, not that the uh, Chicago suburbs are that cheap. No, <laughs> no, I know. But there was a, there was a time period where um, I had anticipated or uh, contemplated moving my son and I to Colorado. Um, but I, I, I chickened out. <laughs> so, um, but it is what it is. I've, I've made a very, I've made a very nice life for myself here. So. Now it was very unusual. I would imagine the the sort of the family configuration you had as a young person. You know, you normally you think of a single parent household. It's sort of a, traditionally that would be the mother, and, and in your case, it was with your dad. What was that like for you as as a young person? And were you aware of kind of that being unconventional in a sense? Um, I don't think I was aware because it was all I knew. My birth mom left my brother and I, I was three and a half. My brother was six. And so I wasn't raised with her in the home. Um, my relationship was always super tight with my dad uh, and my brother. So I didn't realize that our situation was different. I think it was as I, I got older, I recognized that other families looked different, but it never impacted me. I think it was weirder for other people. Like when I I, I got my first bra, you know, my dad took me to get my first bra. My girlfriends were like, what, your dad? I'm like, yeah, doesn't your dad do that? Like, it didn't occur to me that my dad doing that was unusual because it was all I knew. And uh, so I think as an adult woman, um, I've definitely recognized, you know, not having the, you know, two parents in the home or having my mom in my life, um, how much it's impacted me. But I don't think I was affected by it growing up. Was there much of a Jewish influence in your house as, as an early sense? Yeah, we were, um, my dad raised us in a Jewish home. Um, uh, my brother went to Hebrew school um, and was bar mitzvahed. I felt left out. So um, I also went to Hebrew school um, and was bat mitzvahed. Um, we were part of a synagogue that was um, in downtown Chicago. So my brother and I were the... I think the youngest kids there, everybody else was like average age, 60 and older. Um, but it was beautiful. We, you know, our services, I remember were at the Knickerbocker hotel and 
you know, we, I remember getting dressed up and, you know, we went to the high holidays always. And, and then when we moved to California, um, we continued that. My dad's wife is Jewish. And so we continued having um, a Jewish home. Um, but growing up, my dad's second wife, um, she was Catholic. So we celebrated Christmas and we had a Hanukkah bush, you know. <laughs> so, so once you, once you kind of transitioned to the second family, so to speak, there was less of that influence. Um, you know, I think, wait, did Joan, did she convert? Maybe she convert. I think my dad's second wife may have converted. I can't, it's terrible. I can't remember now. Um, it was always, you know, Judaism was always a big, was a part of my upbringing. It's all I knew. Um, the traditions of Christmas were just part of our family because Joan's family was a big, you know, Roman Catholic Italian family, you know, so we always had the Christmas element, but Judaism was where, where our, our faith was based. I mean, where you grew up initially, I mean, it's, it's such a heavily Jewish area. A hundred percent. Yeah. Kids from, you know, which, which honestly is what I'm, is not a big part of my community here where I live now. There's definitely a, a Jewish community, but it's been a little harder to find, but I didn't realize that when I moved to this community, um, oh. but I've definitely found my home here too. Okay, well, off air, if you want any recommendations, I have a good network for that stuff. Okay. So, you know, I can, uh, I can try to connect you. But uh, SoCal in general obviously has its pockets of tremendous Jewish community and it's sparse in some areas. Yeah. So, so what was your, your early trajectory? Were you, you know, what was your aspirations career-wise and what were you doing, you know, once you kind of moved through high school and, and beyond? Um. I was one of those weird kids that knew exactly what I wanted to do from the time I was a little pipsqueak. Um, I always wanted, <laughs> I, I do. I, but I, I was raised with um, uh, a tremendous amount of therapy in our home. My dad was very supportive of my brother and I um, participating in the therapeutic process and um, it really spoke to me. So from the time I was a little, little girl, I always wanted to be a therapist. Um, so while all other kids were playing, you know, teacher and, restaurant in their basements I was playing therapist Which um, itself, uh, probably probably some parents <laughs> thought that might you know something yeah yeah I, I'm teasing I mean I did do all those other fun things but from the time I was little I just knew that sharing with others what I learned and the experience that I had it was so beneficial to me um and I think I just had that sort of personality that people always shared with me their thoughts and feelings and um so that's what I wanted to do from the time I was little is to become a, a therapist so I detoured from that when my brother was killed, but I've sort of made my way back to it a little bit now. So did you initially go uh, to school for I did, psychology? Um, I did, and then and... I was uh, applying for grad school when my brother was killed. So I never completed that path. So let's go there a little bit and, and, and tell me, you know, take us back. Um, for those unfamiliar, Kim just wrapped up a, an incredible podcast that uh, – she hosted and, and I guess co-produced, um, really detailing the story and from her perspective and from kind of more of the victim's perspective, which is really the overlooked and, and but much more important side of the ledger with all of the popular media really focusing on the celebrity of O.J. Simpson uh, in that process. So she really just recently uh, wrapped up that podcast, which I uh, listened to and how I discovered Kim. So take me back, for those who are not familiar with the story, to that period and where you were and then kind of what happened? I was um, living in San Francisco. Um, I 
uh, was finishing up my schooling and my I had an internship at a psychiatric hospital up there and was working full time and um, I was for all intents and purposes in love and <laughs> um, I had a, a boyfriend a serious boyfriend at the time um, and I was you know just in the early stages of the next phase of my life and uh, I got that horrible phone call from my dad that my brother was found um, killed in Brentwood um, mm -hmm. alongside Nicole Brown. So we sort of learned all about the case and learned everything right along with the rest of the public. Um, so it was obviously jarring and, you know, very difficult because I was so young and, and I didn't understand what was happening. And um, at the time, uh, I, I just was completely clueless. I never lost anybody in my life. Um, so I went home and, and uprooted my life and stayed at my dad's house until the end, basically. Well, now, Ron was your only full brother, full sibling, right? And I know, I know from the podcast that you guys were very, yeah, very close. Yeah, we, um, I, as I mentioned, my brother and I were raised with just my dad. Um, and from the time we were little kids, we were just inseparable. And, and you know, we had a, such a great love and, and friendship and you know, my brother, I always say that he was like my protector and um, he took very good care of me and, and um, made sure that I was always watched over and sought, you know, looked after and, and got to class on time, got fed and did my homework. Um, but just, you know, I just always knew that I had someone in my, in my, in my corner. And, uh, you know, I feel very lucky that I had two great influences in my life between my dad and my brother. What was he doing at the time? And what, what, I mean, obviously you, your family was kind of living out here in the West Coast. I know he was a waiter at the time in this restaurant and that was kind of how he came across Nicole. My brother um, was, uh, as you said, he was a waiter. He was living in Brentwood. Um, and, you know, he was in, you know, 25 years old, just shy of his 26th birthday, just like most early 20 something people, you know, trying to find his way. Um, and he was in the process of, developing a, a business plan that he wanted to present to my dad um, about a restaurant that he wanted to open. He had some potential funders for it and had all the art design and the layout. And um, he wanted to open up a small little niche uh, restaurant in Brentwood or in the area, I guess, um, the shape of an onk, which was important to him. Um, but, you know, to kind of feature local artists and, you know, poetry readings and that kind of thing and have it be like a small little neighborhood um, gathering. And that was what he found. I mean, he wasn't much of a school guy. You know, I was the bookworm in our family. Um, and so he was just kind of finding his way. Was he very into the arts in general? Was that a big part of his life? No, he just recognized that that was kind of cool. Um, I'm sure, uh, I know that he had some friends that were interested in that. I mean, that's kind of a hip thing to do. You know, you put local artists on the wall and local readings and that kind of thing. I think he probably thought there was a good, um, a niche that he could, uh, you know, be successful and now he at had, in that According regard. to what I understand, he had never met Nicole, Nicole Brown before, right? I don't think they've never met. They just didn't have a, an intimate relationship, which is what people like to assume. Um, Brentwood, for, for those people that aren't familiar with there, it's a very small kind of bedroom community. Um, from what I've been told, they interact with each other just, you know, around Starbucks or the gym. And um, I think that they were acquaintances. I don't think that there was anything more than that. Got it. But he was more than just a waiter. I mean, they, got, they did kind of know each other, but obviously they weren't together in that, in that sort of way. But he like kind of, I guess, knew where to go to find her, to return her sunglasses and so forth. 
Yeah, and again, I don't know how all that came about. I mean, for all I know, he was given the address. I mean, I don't really know the specifics of how he knew where house, her house was. Um, maybe they, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't know. Um, I just know that there wasn't a, a, a deeper relationship. There could have been a friendship, but, you know, my brother didn't tell me all of the people that he was friends with. Um, and like I said, it's a small, it's a small community. I mean, it's, you know, it's very, you, you have to purposefully go to Brentwood. You don't drive through it. You know, it's a very, you know, right. intimate now, area. This is so. of course the days really before cell phones and before, certainly before social media. Yeah, it was pagers. That was the was era of the you, pager. Was that how paper. you were alerted through a pager or? Um, no, I was working at Wells Fargo Bank in San Francisco and um, my girlfriend was taking me home after my shift was over. It was like 6.30 by the time I think I got home. Um, and the news was in on all day here in Los Angeles, but it never revealed my brother's name until around five o'clock when they finally made contact with my dad because you can't legally do that um, without making a notification to the next of kin. So, and I had seen a little bit on, on the news up in San Francisco, but I didn't pay any attention, didn't know what I was watching. So when I got home to my apartment, um, my boyfriend at the time was there and told and told me to call my dad. And so, yeah, but I don't remember. There was no pagers. I don't think I had a pager at the time. I don't think I was. Yeah, cool it was enough. like a, yeah. a doctor kind of thing to have. Or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so did you know right away that this was like, did you suspect right away that this was probably O.J. Simpson? I have no idea who he was. I didn't know who Nicole was. I had no idea who he was. Um, so I didn't understand any, any of the notoriety, I had no clue what it represented, what we were about to engage, embark upon. Um, I just kind of was dumped off into this, you know, fishbowl of, a, of an existence for a very long time. I think at that point, most people knew O.J. Simpson not from his football days, but more from, you know, the Naked Gun movies and uh, Hertz commercials and things like that. So he was more a part of kind of popular culture at that point, but you still weren't that familiar with, with his person. I, I had no, I had no idea who he was. Nothing. Mm -mm. Interesting. So when did you get a sense that this was a little bit of a different kind of situation then? Within 10 minutes, basically, because it was all over the news. Um, and as soon as I got home, there was news cameras everywhere. Um, uh, and then obviously people started telling us and they were, you know, showing footage and, um, but I, I don't care about celebrityism. I'm not that phased by it, but I don't know that I ever truly understood what we were involved in. It just was, there was just media everywhere and it was just nonstop here in Los Angeles. It probably wasn't like that as much across the country until a little bit later, but in LA it was nonstop in those first hours, days. Was your family able to grieve at all at that time? No. Because when you're kind of in that, you can't, you know, was it just all focused on finding who did it and, and dealing with, with that aspect of things? And, and if so, when did you ever have a chance to actually just grieve as, as a sibling? Um, I think I'm, st I'm still doing that. Um, I don't think at the time, uh, you know, I've never buried anybody before. I'd never been to a funeral before. I didn't understand that process. Um, so, you know, our steps next steps were you have to make funeral arrangements and I had to go to my brother's apartment and, and help the, law enforcement and find a suit for him to be buried in. And then we had to close out bank accounts and, you know, find his lost dry cleaning. I mean, there's all these things that no one really tells you about and that we had to get him out of his lease. We had to move him out of his apartment and, and there was just so much peripheral 
damage um, at that time that the grieving process, I don't think really truly started until I would say after the civil case ended, um, which was after the criminal case, because we were just so inundated with court um, and um, just the, the public notoriety of everything. You don't really have a chance to do that. I mean, there's, there was never a break. We went very quickly from murder to funeral to court to trial to after trial to next case. Like it just. Right. Yeah. What was the timeline exactly? He was killed in 1994. Yeah. And then, and then I remember, I guess the trial was in 95, 96. What was the. Um, Yeah. The trial started in um, 95 uh, at the beginning of the year. um, And it lasted nine and a half months. And then I think the civil case, I want to say it started in 97, but I could be wrong. I think it was 97. It moved very quickly after the criminal case. Um, And then the civil case didn't last. I think it was only a couple of months that that lasted. Um, So, you know, the first couple of years after my brother died, we were just locked up in, in court proceedings. And, you know, again, the, the country was, emotionally gripped, I think, by the story. Um, The media was very much involved. And so there was always something going on. We never really got a true respite from it. So when the camera stopped showing up and the, and the news stopped covering it all the time, I think that was when it kind of set in like, wait, wait, something's not right now. Like there's everything's done, everything's gone. And especially my brother. And so I think that was probably the first time that we were really able to kind of sit in our, in our grief and, and really start to process it. Oh, and then we have, you know, at some point in there, we have the unveiling of the headstone, which, oh my gosh. you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, at the, at the gravesite, um, Marsha Clark, one of the lead prosecutors came, um, and I, and I remember asking her, like, why did, why did you do this? Like, you know, I mean, it was such, it was hard. It was hard to, to go back and, you know, and, and to have all that pain again, um, at the gravesite. And, um, I, I understand it, but at the time it was just, it was so hard so hard to do an unveiling unveiling of the headstone and anyway i can't even imagine yeah. and it must have been really hard because the case became so much about the personalities around it oj obviously himself but even way beyond that you had you know judge ito you know and all saturday night live and all like this the spoofs and the and i remember this as you know as a i was an older teenager i guess it was 18 19 around that time 17 18 and um, just, you know, all the, the, the dream team of the, the defense attorneys and, and Marsha Clark and all the spoofs on her and all these different things. Like, was it really hard for you that it, it wasn't really about your brother, that it wasn't about justice for these victims? It was much more about these personalities? Um, yeah, we were super frustrated. Um, I mean, we weren't even allowed to wear any kind of, you know, pin or picture to, to uh, you know, align ourselves with the victims. Um, you know, uh, Judge Ito thought that that would be, uh, would have to prejudicial. prejudicial to the jury. Um, well, what did the jury think that you weren't on the side? Of well, trust me. I mean, it was such a, you know, we wanted to wear, um, well, the Brown family, uh, wanted to wear angel pins. And so the angel pin sort of became synonymous with, with Ron and Nicole. And so I remember Marsha Clark went into the courtroom and she was wearing the angel pin and the defense team made a big stink about it and she had to take it off. We had pictures, um, buttons made with my brother's face on it. We weren't allowed to wear those. And so we were very frustrated and, and not to 
be disparaging towards Nicole's family, but my brother was always referred to as the other victim, the friend. Um, nobody ever uses his name. Um, even now I still see things, um, you know, that it'll say Nicole Brown and, and the other person, you know, 25 years later. Um, it's so, super frustrating for me. But, you know, we, again, we didn't understand what was going on. We didn't, we didn't get it. So we were just there fighting for my brother and wanting to make sure that his, that his you know, legacy would be remembered positively. And um, we just wanted justice for both of them. But it was very frustrating to not have him be equally seen, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, so, so much of, I, and I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and some of the ones that, that I really appreciate are the ones that move the spotlight back onto the victims. Because there's so much celebrity, so to speak, or intrigue, let's say, around the perpetrators of crimes, which is kind of twisted in a, in a way, but the victims themselves don't often get their due. Well, I mean, it starts with the fact that our system's called the criminal justice system. You know, we don't call it the victim's justice system or just the system. You know, we, we set ourselves up to have the focus be on the defendant to begin with. And so it is very hard. And, and not just with our case. I mean, I see this all across the country with victims and survivors that it's very hard to have the, the focus and the attention be on the people that are left in the wake of tragedy or, um, you know, that the focus should be on the people that were actually had the crimes perpetrated against. It's very hard to do that. And I don't get it. What was your relationship with the Brown family? Did your families form a tight connection during that period? Um, no. Uh, I think, you know, we had different feelings. Um, there was a different, uh, a different focus. Um, Nicole's family, um, uh, I can't even imagine, but they were the guardians of Nicole's children at the time. So their focus was really to be um, taking care of the kids and to shield and protect them as much as possible. Um, we were just, we're different families. We come from different backgrounds, different beliefs. So, you know, we were united front as we needed to be and we should be, but we just, you know, it, we, we process and grieve differently. So I think the, the verdict for many people of that era, it was one of those situations where it's kind of you remember where you were, you know, at that moment or on that day, not to compare it to, you know, 9-11 or something of that nature. But along those lines, in terms of the way people remember it, I remember myself, actually the exact road, I was outside of the Motor Vehicle Administration on Kenilworth Avenue in Baltimore. I remember getting in or out of my car and listening to the radio and hearing that, being shocked you obviously were there. What was that like? Were you astounded by the outcome? And what was your experience at that moment? I don't know that I was astounded. I think I felt betrayed. And I think uh, I was just shocked. And, and I, I think I, I didn't walk in there with any preconceived notion, I don't think, of what I was about to hear. I know that there were lots of people um, in our uh, circle that our, our family circle that thought that he was going to be found guilty because how could he not be? I don't know that I necessarily a hundred percent believe that because I was sitting in that courtroom every single day for nine and a half months. And I don't know that I trusted that the jury saw what I saw. Um, the jury was very disconnected to the prosecution side. They seemed to be very enamored with the defense and disinterested in the prosecution's case. That was my interpretation of their body language because that's all I was left to do was to study 
their eyes and their gaze and their fidgetiness or, you know, where they were looking or how much they were writing. I mean, all those things that you're taught not to do as a kid um, in terms of like judging a book by its cover. That's all I had to do when sitting in a courtroom. So I don't know that I had a strong feeling one way or the other going in there, but I don't know that I was hundred percent confident. So when I heard what I heard, uh, I just felt devastated and just felt very betrayed. And also the fact that there was such a short deliberation, was it not? Yeah, it was three and a half hours. Correct. And, you know, if, if folks listen to the podcast on episode seven, we talked to the jury, two members of the jury. Um, thank you. Two members of the jury. And they talk about, you know, why they deliberated only for three and a half hours. Um, and it, it really kind of validated what I always thought, which was that they were done, that they were checked out, their bags were packed. I knew that. Um, and they wanted to go home. And so, you know, I, harbored a lot of harbor <laughs> a lot of anger um and resentment because i don't think they did their job um i know i'm supposed to respect their verdict and i get that um, but i don't think that they i don't think they completed their task and i don't think they did their job but well that being said i mean your your work and your conversations with them was executed with so much graciousness um that didn't that sentiment didn't come through at all that's from a listener's perspective <laughs> Your producer and you were talking about that and you know and, and the people were giving you some flack for even being like too soft on them well you know i think i went into this process doing the show i mean the, the the name of the show is not called confrontation right so it's called confronting and so for me it really separated out what my purpose and my intention was i'm allowed to have feelings of resentment towards the jury i'm allowed to have feelings of anger with their decision. It doesn't mean I can't have compassion for what they experienced. It doesn't mean I can't be sensitive to how it impacted and affected their life. It doesn't mean I can't be kind. It just means that I'm able to put those, those feelings into different boxes so that I can function in a healthy life. Um, and I, I'm frustrated sometimes. I think when people listen to me talk about this case, they think that I'm bitter and I'm angry. Um, I get a lot of emails that tell me if I could just find Jesus, I'd be good. And I'm like, <laughs> kind of a Jew. We don't do don't that. See, but okay, but, no. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but I appreciate the sentiment that I think when people hear me talk or they see me, you know, for the 20 second soundbite, I'm usually pissed about something because it's angering the experience that we've had. It does not mean though that I have not been able to find ways to move through it so that it doesn't completely suffocate me as a, as a 47 year old woman trying to, you know, live a toxicity free life. So, um, I am able to compartmentalize. Instead of pissed, um, maybe I would say passionate. <laughs> um, passionate, but I'm also pissed. Um, <laughs> Because I do have anger about certain things. It doesn't mean, though, that the anger consumes me. It just means it's appropriate for the situation that I've been placed in. Being that I was raised in therapy, being that I have a, a pretty solid group of people that I surround myself with, um, I, know how to, I know how to process that and put it into a Sounds, sounds very place. much like a therapist's uh, perspective. <laughs> the ability to, to, to hold multiple emotions at once and and be, you know, and honor each of them and be true to each of them and, and be able to live with contradiction, which yeah. is really what that is on, on some level. Um, right. So right. take me to this podcast because the case is old at this point. What made you want to do this podcast and what was the process like and what made you want to do it now specifically? Um, I don't know that I walked into, into the room with Glass Entertainment. Um, with this in mind, it's always been important for me to draw attention to victims and survivors and um, what people do in the, in the aftermath, what people do, you know, 
faced with adversity. Um, I've met some really incredible people over the years that um, have gone on to do some amazing things on behalf of the victims movement, and we don't give them any credit. It's not sexy enough to, to talk about that. Um, so it's important for me to always be shining a light on the advocacy element. And this show is in, in a way, a pathway to let that happen um, because the goal is to get to the second season, um, which is be doing somebody else's story. Um, I wrote a book a handful of years ago called Media Circus. And the whole book was about other people's trauma, other people's life um, in the public eye that had high profile cases and, and how people process and, and the element of resiliency and courage and bravery. And so for me with this particular podcast, um, I wanted to reclaim some control. I wanted to be able to, to have some control over the narrative because I think for so long in the last couple of years, we've been listening to all these ridiculous conspiracy theories and, you know, fictionalized versions of things and people that talk about it that weren't even alive at the time. And now they're suddenly experts on the case. Like, I was frustrated. Um, there's a whole new generation of people, our kids included, that are learning about this case through blog posts and Wikipedia. And sometimes those are not the most um, authentic and fact-based stories. So I felt like I could lend a different voice to something um, that's been told before. What did you end up doing career-wise once you know, the trial and fiasco had kind of all sort of passed? Did you ever end up get, getting back to therapy? Did you get into criminal advocacy or advocacy for victims as a vocation, as an avocation, where did your life go from there? So during the civil case, um, I was by way of a, a very nice star of a show at the time. Um, she uh, got me a job at a television production company and I was working on the Larry Sanders show on, yeah, I was working for a production company for a long time and it served its purpose because it gave me somewhere to go um, every day. It allowed me to, to save a little bit of money because I had nothing. And it gave me some amazing friendships. And then from that, I, I continued in my, um, in my quest for doing good in the world. So I went to work for a company called Cure Autism Now. Uh, and then I went to Best Buddies, which works with people with developmental disabilities and partnering them in non-disabled relationships. Um, and then now I run uh, the Youth Project, which is a nonprofit organization that provides free mental health to teenagers. So I've been doing that since 2005. So yes, I did make my way back to mental health. And then I also um, do a lot of advocacy work um, in the, non in the uh, victim world. So I am the vice chair of the National Center for Victims of Crime. And then um, I am an advisory board member for a handful of other works that are all focused on, on victim advocacy. What are some of the things that you, you know, are, are passionate about or pissed about when it comes to victim <laughs> advocacy? What are some of the things you want to see happen? And one of the really interesting kind of observations I had about your particular work is that a lot of the, I guess, criminal justice reform type of things that are out there, at least that I've seen right now, tend to focus a lot on wrongful convictions and actually on the perpetrator side, so to speak, right? And here you're kind of on the opposite side. You're sort of on the prosecution side of the, of the ledger, if you will. Are you ever at odds with other advocates in the general criminal justice reform space? And, and what are the things you're particularly working on? Um, that's a good observation. I think that what frustrates me about the criminal reform, criminal justice reform process is that they don't include a lot of victims to the table. And I think that there's, 
some real positive impact that could be had if we opened up the dialogue to include victims. Because I, I think that there's a perception that all victims, you know, we want, you know, I mean, and I know this is probably not very positive, but I, I believe in the death penalty. I mean, and I didn't before. I didn't think that way, but now I do. And I also recognize the flaws in the system that make that confusing. But being that my experience wasn't my, it was, I changed my mind on death penalty. And so, and then I'm, I flip-flop, you know, but I think that, I think that there's conversation to be had with how people are impacted by trauma, what you experience going through the system, where victims are not being honored in the system, and how the criminal justice system can do better. Uh, we don't have victims' rights in every single state across this country. I don't know why we don't. We fight for what that. Is, what does that mean? That means that we don't, we're not being given the right to... Um, to have a victim's impact statement, that we don't know when our perpetrators are released on parole, that we're not given notice of that. So in some states, if your person that committed a crime against you is released on parole, they don't have to notify the victim that that happened. So you're just walking along and then suddenly you see your person. So um, Marcy's law is a, is a law that that is working very hard to make sure that victims are protected across the country. And it's not in every state. And I don't know why. Victims' restitution funds are not happening across the board. We don't do a lot to help victims get paid back for the crime against them. That, that should be inherent in our system, and it's not. Because there's this kind of bifurcation between the criminal and civil sides of things? Well, the civil system doesn't do that either. So really? if you're awarded a judgment in the civil system, you have no resources available to you to help you collect. But speaking just specifically in the criminal case, you know, we had a victim's advocate assigned to us in the criminal system. So we had someone that was there to to meet us and to walk us through the the trial and to be there for us and help us with questions um, and to help us with, you know, paperwork so that we can get, you know, mental health treatment um, that's, that's afforded to certain, for a certain number of sessions or dollar amount. I forget exactly what it is. Um, you can have parts of your funeral expenses be covered by the state because that all comes out of the victim restitution fund. But not every state has enough money to have victims advocates. And so not every victim knows they're entitled to an advocate. And so you don't know to ask for one. You don't know to ask questions that you don't know because you've never been in that situation. And so, you know, and again, each state is run differently. So I, I'm not a, I'm not an expert in every single state as it relates to victims' rights, but it shouldn't be this difficult. Every prosecutor, every law enforcement agent should know exactly what the rights are for those victims in that state. And we shouldn't be fighting so hard to, to be protected under a system that's supposed to be designed to protect all of us. So you find you're able to work synergistically with those who are you know, innocence project type people and, and working for against wrongful convictions? Or do you guys sometimes seem at cross purposes? Um, I haven't gotten involved in the innocence project. And I don't know that that's exactly where I want to be putting all my energy right now. I feel more strongly in making sure that the victims are a priority, not making sure that people that are wrongfully convicted are free. Not that I'm against it. It's just, there's enough people doing that. We got to work on the other side because there's so many of us that come through um, the pipeline of people that are, are left in the wake of, of tragedy that I think better attention for me uh, is better suited working in that realm. Um, but I definitely do support being part of the conversation for criminal justice reform. Um, and I'm working with the national Senate to try to, to make that happen. So this is really a state by state battle when you're dealing with these kinds of reforms. Yeah, because like I said, every state, you know, runs a little bit differently, you know, and, and for whatever reason, depending on politics and, and depending on the political agenda of, of different states dictates where, victims' rights fall on the Richter scale. You know, even if you look from a federal 
perspective, we haven't passed the Violence Against Women Act. I mean, I don't know why that's still stalled in Congress. Um, that's a no-brainer, you know, but it's a, it's a money issue for some. And I'd look at that and think, find the money. You find the money for everything else, find a way to make sure that, you know, victims of domestic violence and stalking and sexual assault have the resources they need to be safe in their communities. That needs to be a priority. I don't want to get super political, but gun safety, I mean, there's all these issues that we can meet the needs of both if we just come to it with an open heart and an open mind and, you know, and recognize that there's, there's lots of us out here that feel passionate and can also be reasonable while we're passionate or pissed. <laughs> what can ordinary people do if they want to get involved in this kind of advocacy? You know what? I, I would say pay attention to your local government, pay attention to your city council. I, I know it sounds silly, but start at the base, you know, the base, like school board, city council, know who your senators are, know their position on victims' rights, on law enforcement, um, read the bills before you vote on them. Um, you know, don't just read the, the hashtag because it's meant to confuse people. Get involved. Um, I know that there's a lot of people that think, you know, it doesn't phase me. It's going to one day. We're all touched by crime on, on some level, whether we realize it or not. It's in our communities, it's in our schools, it's in our homes. You know, but if we, if we plead ignorance to it and we don't research and get involved and educate ourselves, then we have no one to blame but ourselves. So find out what's passionate to you. Find out the ramifications of certain bills passing, where money's going. Vote for your district attorneys. Vote for your judges. Know what their backgrounds are as it relates to, to crime and, and law enforcement. I don't know. I just say educate ourselves and not try not to be complacent. I know it's a lot to digest. Has the podcast been therapeutic for you after all these years? Yeah, it was great. As hard as it was, it was great. Um, I realized I'm a lot more mature than I thought in some areas. And I don't mean that I'm immature, but I think that I, I'm more, sure is the only word I can use in terms of my thinking. I always knew I was able to separate my heart and my mind from certain things. Um, but doing this process, I, I realized that I, I'm much further along and on that road than I realized I was. And I, I also recognize the need to be open-minded. I think I've always been pretty open-minded, but this process has been really helpful in that regard to remind me to do that and then to invite other people into that process as well. How have you tried to memorialize Ron in your own life? What have you done to keep his memory alive? Um, I think every day that I'm being a good mom to my kid um, and being a good community leader and doing the work that I get to do with the youth project and affecting the lives of these teenagers that I work, that I work with and the advocacy work that I get to do, um, I think I do all those things in my brother's memory, but also because I want to have a, leave a good legacy for my family. But my brother, you know, I carry my pin that I was talking about earlier. It's still in my car on my, where my mirror is. I wear his necklace and his ring. I haven't taken them off since he died. I talk to him all the time. And I just, I speak of him as often as I can because I think it's important for people to realize what a true hero is. Kim, where can people learn more? What are the best resources to learn more about your story, the work that you've been doing, the advocacy, whatever links or you have so many different aspects of, of your of your journey. But what, what would you want to... so nice. Um, I would say um, if I could get my act together on my website, I try I'm slow on that, but my website, which is KimberlyGoldman.com, is a good way. But probably on Twitter is where I try to keep most up to date, which is just at Kim E. Goldman. I, I try to be more active there with the stuff that I'm working on, but and then hopefully it translates over to the website. <laughs> I do that in my insomniac hours. There you go. Each of these things takes time. I, I, yeah. I get it. I, I get it. Well, it's an incredible story. And, and what's so powerful to me is that you've taken what's 
really a very personal tragedy and a tragedy that was really almost not allowed to be appreciated. And it was, it was so drowned by so much else, you know, and, and you've taken that and translated it into incredible good for other people and to help so many victims out there and, and families of victims. And that's, a, I think, a really important lesson for, for everyone listening um, to be able to translate personal suffering into goodness for others. Um, so thank you for that work. And thanks for bringing these incredible things to, to our attention. Kim Goldman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ari. I appreciate the time. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.